In our discussions last week, we were considering whether or not the call to the ministry was the highest call that God would ever give to a man. And I suppose we can have different ideas concerning whether that's the highest call or not. But I would certainly say that there's no greater privilege than serving in the kingdom of Christ and for Christ's church. And there's no service that is of more consequence than our serving in the kingdom. And the very thought of that privilege and the very thought of the consequences involved in that ministry ought to bring us to our understanding of complete and utter dependence that we have upon the Lord. As we consider the life and death ministry, our notion ought to be that which was the Apostle Paul as he considered uh, the fact that what he preached was life to some and death to others. Who's sufficient for these things? And I dare say that if any man feels sufficient for these things, I would dare question, really, the very nature of his call. This is a sobering business that we are in, one that requires divine help. And our sufficiency cannot be found in self. Our sufficiency cannot be found in our own competence or our own energies or our own talents or abilities. Our sufficiency can only be found in God. And a key component of that divine sufficiency is the available power that we have to enable us to do the ministry that God has called us to. And that's simply the theme that I want to address with you this morning. The power for the ministry. And where does that power come from? What is the power that we can have by the help of the Spirit of God? It's a power on which we must rely. It's a power upon which we must plead, for which we must plead. And it's a power without which we should fear to serve. In some of our traditions, the minister, before he ascends to the pulpit, will stand there in silent prayer. I don't know what my colleagues in the ministry pray for during those silent moments. But one of the requests that I always have for the Lord as I stand there before I ascend into the pulpit is that the Lord would empower me by His Spirit, <coughs> that I would know something of that spiritual anointing. For I would fear, I would fear to ascend that pulpit. The Lord knows my inabilities and my fears. But I need the help. I need that empowering of the Spirit of God. So in addressing this today, I want to talk to you. I don't know if what I'm doing today is preaching to you. Uh, it's certainly not a great sermon. I'd hate to be judged even by myself on practice preaching on the outline that we'll look at today. But I want to talk to you uh, heart to heart as minister to minister concerning this desperate need that we must have as we come to serve in the ministry of the gospel. And in so doing, I want to use this, one of my favorite texts from my favorite minor prophet, Zechariah, this vision that 
the prophet has concerning this candlestick, this lampstand. This was a vision that was particularly given to Zerubbabel, for Zerubbabel. There were eight visions. You remember the context here? Zechariah, one of the post-exilic prophets, the captivity was now over. The people, some of the people had returned back to the land and their primary business, the first order of business was to rebuild the temple. The building of that temple was an essential part of kingdom work in that particular period. For that temple had to be in place uh, for the fullness of time to come. So all of this was geared and directed toward the advancing of Christ's kingdom and the preparation for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. But you recall the opposition. As the people were there in the land, they were busy doing their work of rebuilding the temple. Some were discouraged when they saw how small it was in comparison to what they remembered concerning what Solomon's temple was. Others were so happy because they had never seen Solomon's temple and they were rejoicing uh, in what was before them. But it wasn't long. It wasn't long in that process before the opposition came from the outside. And that opposition from the outside then led to apathy on the inside and the work of God stopped. And in the goodness of God, he raised up two prophets, raised up Haggai and Zechariah to address this particular issue of rebuilding the temple. This was the kingdom work that was central at that particular time. And he raised up, I say, these two prophets to encourage the people to get back to the building of that temple, regardless of the external opposition and regardless of the internal apathy that had been generated because of their inactivity, to get back to work. Haggai was the older of the two prophets. He was the realist. And he just flat out told them, you get back to do this, you put God first and get this thing done. Zechariah was more the prophet of hope. As he put before the people the great plan and the great purpose of God for his people. And if they could be overwhelmed with where God was taking them and what God's purpose was for them, then they would be motivated to get back to the building of the temple. And Zechariah begins his ministry with a series of these eight visions that give us a panoramic view of God's purpose uh, for his kingdom and the place that these people had in the rebuilding of the temple and in the advancing of the kingdom. And in this fifth vision, the attention now is drawn particularly to Zerubbabel. And it's not without significance that Zerubbabel, remember, was the civil leader he was the one that was in charge of the rebuilding, the reconstruction of the temple. And so the weight of that stoppage was upon him. Discouraged, I'm sure he was. But here is a word now that God gave particularly and especially for Zerubbabel for the rebuilding of this temple. It's a vision. So my outline very simply is this. I want us to look at the picture of the vision and then to get the point that God was giving to Zerubbabel through this picture. The picture is very clear. What do you see? What do you see? I see a candlestick or a lampstand, all of gold. This was one of the key pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, in the temple. So it's not 
surprising that in, in this word of encouragement that Zechariah is going to give to Zerubbabel, that he draws attention to some of the aspects of the temple, the lampstand. The lampstand was a great picture, obviously, of illumination. There's the light. Uh, the construction, there's so many things in the lampstand itself that are typical, that are prophetic pictures of the Lord Jesus and the relationship that his people have with him. You think of the candlestick, the lampstand, all of gold, all of one piece, all of one piece. It was the, the branches were not, the branches were not somehow soldered on or fixed on some, but it was all in one piece, a solid piece with the center shaft being prominent and all the other shafts pointing their light to that one center shaft. What a picture it is uh, of Christ who is the light of the world. What a picture it is then of the believer that are the lights of the world that bear witness to that one true light. Uh, it's a wonderful picture uh, that had its fulfillment ultimately in the Lord Jesus. But you recall that the lampstand was fueled, was fueled by the oil. And it was the responsibility of the priest day by day to go into that place where the lampstand was and make sure that there was oil there for the burning. I'm not taking the time this morning to remind you, I think we all are aware of this basically anyway, that the Spirit of God is symbolized very often uh, in the Scripture as the oil. And the oil was necessary for the burning. So this is the picture. All right, this is the picture, very simple picture. Here's the lampstand. This speaks of illumination, but it speaks here particularly of the coming of the Lord Jesus that was so integral to the advancing of the kingdom, obviously, and the fuel for the burning. Now, there are some unique features here. There are some modifications uh, that Zechariah sees in this vision because uh, not only was it the lampstand, but there was a bowl on top of it. That wasn't in the tabernacle. That wasn't in the temple. A bowl on top of it. On either side were these two olive trees, and from the bowl there, there were pipes that were going then to each of the uh, particular lampstand or uh, each of the uh, places where the fuel was to be placed. Uh, an odd picture, but that's going to be significant here as we will get the point. Now, that's where I want to focus my primary attention today. What's the point of this? Here's the lampstand fueled by the oil, fueled by then this picture of the Holy Spirit that was to be an encouragement to Zerubbabel. Here's the point, and there are one, two, three, four things uh, that I want us to see concerning the point of this vision. We have the interpretation given to us. Zechariah, you see what this means? And Zechariah said, no, I don't know what it means. Well, the Lord has this interpreting angel here now that is going to instruct Zechariah what it is that he's seeing so that he can then give that message of encouragement to Zerubbabel. And the very first lesson is a lesson about power. Look at verse 6. This, in many ways, I suppose, is the crux of the interpretation. Then he answered and spake unto me, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Here is how the kingdom is going to advance. Here is how the work of the kingdom is going to go forward. Not by might. And that word might, you're all Hebrew scholars here, this is Hayul. 
this word speaks sometimes of a whole army. Here's collective strength. The work of the kingdom is not to be accomplished by just getting together with those even of like mind and making plans and scheming to do this or planning to do that. It's not our organizational skills. It's not our collective strength together that is going to advance the kingdom. So it's not by collective strength. And it's not by power. A word here that is more individual. It's not by that ability that we have. It's not resting upon our own skills. It's not resting upon our own strength. No, it is not by collective strength. It is not by individual strength, but it is by my spirit. It is by my spirit, saith the Lord. It is this empowering by the spirit of God. I'm not taking time. You're all, again, aware, I'm sure, of the different aspects of the spirit's ministry, particularly as uh, it's revealed to us in the Old Testament scriptures. Spirit of God is that agent of regeneration. He gives life where there is spiritual death. We have the indwelling of the Spirit of God that speaks of fellowship and communion uh, of God with His people. We have the influence of the Spirit that directs His people to holiness. But far and away, the primary data that we have of the ministry of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is upon the empowering. The empowering of the Spirit of God is always task-oriented. It is always ministry-oriented. The Spirit of God would come upon a judge, and He would judge. The Spirit of God would come upon a king, and He would rule. The Spirit of God would come upon a prophet. He would prophesy. It was always ministry-oriented, the empowering of the service. And it was repetitive. It was repetitive. Uh, as the prophet would speak, he needed that empowering of the Spirit. This is what we're looking at here. We're talking about that empowering, that empowering for service, that empowering for service that is ministry-oriented, that is service-oriented. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, that empowering was primarily limited to the, to the leadership. It was kings, it was prophets, it was priests, it was judges, it was... It was an odd thing for the empowering to come upon the lay people. Moses anticipated the wonder of that. Remember when uh, they, they got finished with their elder meeting and there were a couple of the elders that were going around the camp and they, were, they kept prophesying and, uh, and people were concerned about, about uh, them taking some of Moses as glorious as Moses. No, would that all of God's people... Would that all of God's people have that power to prophesy, that power to ministry. And that's exactly what has happened at Pentecost, isn't it? What happened at Pentecost is this massive effusion of spiritual power. There they were in the upper room, 120 of them, women and men and boys and girls, all of them that were there empowered. The Spirit of God came down in a massive effusion of spiritual power. And they went out and what did they do? Joel prophesied this. They went out and they did prophet stuff. These were not prophets. They weren't preachers, but they are empowered by the Spirit of God, and they got out there and did the work of the kingdom. Now, that's what I'm talking about here. So this is what the focus here. Here is this empowering for service, and empowering for service, and it is only as the Spirit of God enables us, only as the Spirit of God empowers us, are we able then to do the work of the ministry. So here's the first lesson. Here's the first point of this remarkable vision that it's not by anything you can do, not by any energy or talent that you have, but it's by my spirit, 
said the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of armies, that God who has all power to fulfill his word. You look at that particular expression, I think it's over 50 times in Zechariah's little prophecy that he designates the Lord as Jehovah of armies, Jehovah of hosts, that God's the commander in chief, that God who has all power to sustain and to enable his people to do what he commands them to do. So there's power. But then there's success. This is the next point. Look at verse 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? I would take the mountain here, something to represent the, all the obstacles. Here are the obstacles that were facing Zerubbabel. All the obstacles that had come that were hindrances now to the advancing of the kingdom. The temple was just laying there. Uh, and the rubbish was still there. The foundation was laid, but nothing else was being done. Mountains of opposition. But when the Spirit of God was operative, when the Spirit of God came and empowered, what's this great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt be a plain. The mountain is just going to be flattened out. Yeah, the mountain of obstacles, all of the hindrances to the work of the kingdom just flattened out. Oh, not by Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was at a standstill. He, he, he lost the ability to do whatever. But now with the Spirit of God, with the Spirit of God, that great mountain of obstacles is flattened out. Success. Going to bring forth the headstone, that which marks completion. This is going to be brought to completion, this work. God's kingdom is going to advance. Nothing can ultimately frustrate it. Nothing can cause it to fail. Comes to completion. So headstone is laid with shoutings, grace, grace, unto it. We know anything in the success of our ministries. It's going to be as the Spirit of God <coughs> empowers us, as the Spirit of God enables us, to do that work with the ministry. But there's also encouragement. Look at verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. Going to finish it. There's the success. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. So the Lord is in this operation. But look at verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. Kind of an awkward translation there. You see the word with is in italics. So get rid of the word with there if we can for a moment and just take those seven back as the subject of the verb. Those seven shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. And what are those seven? Those seven are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. It speaks to us here of the omniscience of God. It speaks to us here of that all-seeing eye of God that notices everything. Nothing escapes his attention. Nothing escapes his observation. Complete and perfect, infinite is his knowledge. Don't despise the day of small things. Here's, here, here, here's I say, encouragement. Here's the encouragement. This is the point encouragement for the ministry. We sometimes get discouraged. At least I do. Maybe you don't. 
You get discouraged sometimes when you look at what appears to be the nothingness of what you're doing in the ministry. There are no results and everybody, nothing seems to. And maybe you're in a small work and some of, some of us, yeah, there are few people, right? There are few people. There are few in the ministry. So I digress on my digression. There are few people in the ministry that are going to have big places, right? Very few. Most of us, most of us are going to be in small places. Most of us are going to be in very insignificant places as far as the world is concerned. And if you're in this business, if you're in this business, can I call it a business here for a moment? If you're in this business to get a name for yourself, if you're in this business to promote yourself, if you're in this business to just somehow find a ministry where everybody's going to know your name, go someplace else. Really, go someplace else. We're not in it for a name. We're not in it for our own reputations. And I say most of us, in the providence of God, in the purpose of God, there are those that have big ministries. And that's good, and they have a great influence. But most of us are going to have a small little circle in which we minister. Don't be discouraged with that. Don't be discouraged with that. That's where most of us are. But here's the encouragement, yeah? When God sees, when the omniscient God sees even that what appears to be from a human perspective an insignificant ministry, it brings joy. It brings joy to the Lord. Even holding the plummet, holding the plummet, just a little line that would be used to mark the straightness of this or that. It doesn't take any sense. It doesn't take any particular talent to hold the plumb line. I'm fairly, I say fairly incompetent, I'm completely incompetent when it comes to doing stuff with my hands. My brother, Dr. Kelderman here, he can do anything with his hands as well as his head. I can't. And I recall when I was a kid, my grandfather was a, a woodworker, carpenter, built some houses. And from time to time he would take me with him, trying to teach me the trade. And he saw my incompetence. And, but one of, my, one of my jobs, one of my jobs was to take, you know, these rulers, what do you call them, these tape measures, what they are. And on one end of them, right, you have the roll. The other end, you had this little hook that you would. My job, for the most part, was just holding that hook on whatever it was he was measuring, right? All he would trust me with. It's all he would trust me with. But if I let it go, whew, that thing just sucked right back into the roll. You had to hold it. You had, it was a small job, a small, insignificant job, but it served a purpose. And many, most of us, I dare say, as far as our ministries are concerned, are going to be, are, we're going to be holding the plumb line, right? Insignificant in man's view, insignificant in man's eyes, 
But when God sees even the least work done for his kingdom, when he even sees the least work done for his purpose, empowered, empowered by his spirit, here indeed is the encouragement. Rejoice. Rejoice. Even so don't don't be planning your ministry to somehow get you a name. If the Lord gives you one, fine, we need that. But I say, where, where's most of us going to be? We're going to be in the small places. Few that we minister to. But what a, what a joy that is. What a joy that is. What ought a thrill that ought to be for us to know that even in those, what the world would say, insignificant places, that we're serving the Lord. And that powerful serving of the Lord is going to bring joy to the Lord himself. And then the last lesson, the last point in regard to this vision is that we have an inexhaustible supply. An inexhaustible supply of spiritual power. Verses 11 and following comes back now to the vision itself. There's some things still, still Zechariah says, I, I, don't, I don't quite get. What are these two olive trees? Upon the right side and upon the left side. And we see in, in verse 12 the detail that we weren't given back in the vision. The beginning. From these two olive trees are two troughs. There are two troughs that go from each of those olive trees to that bowl that was on top of the lampstand. Remember, we saw that at least in the vision, that there was a bowl on top that was unusual, or at least different from the temple tabernacle. Had the bowl on top, and then from that bowl were seven pipes that were going to each of the lamps. But now we see that those two olive trees had a trough, a pipe that were going from them directly to that top bowl and then to the seven lamps. In the tabernacle, in the temple, it was the responsibility of the priests to make sure day by day, to make sure day by day that there was going to be oil in those lamps for the burning. But no priests are involved here. Directly from the olive trees, and this is the point, directly from the olive trees is a constant, inexhaustible supply of oil that is coming directly to that bull and then directly to the lamps. An inexhaustible supply of power. The oil for the burning, the oil for the burning was being constantly supplied. Now, We've already agreed, I think, that the oil represents the Spirit, speaks to us of the Spirit of God. A constant, inexhaustible supply of the Spirit of God. This is how Jesus ministered, isn't it? When Jesus began his public ministry, baptism, the anointing of the Spirit, and that Spirit 
enable Jesus, and this is part of the mystery of the Incarnation, but we have the involvement of the Spirit of God in the ministry of Jesus as he conducted his ministry of the kingdom work. But what was true for Jesus? New Testament tells us that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. He had the Spirit without measure. You and I don't have the Spirit without measure. But we have the Spirit every time we need Him. We have the Spirit every time we need Him for us. For us, the Spirit empowering is a repetitive operation. The fact that I had the Spirit of God when I preached the last time I preached doesn't mean that I'm good to go for the next time I preach. I need a fresh anointing. I need a fresh anointing and a fresh empowering of that Spirit every time we be engaged in the work of the ministry. No matter what it is, no matter what it is, whether I'm preaching, as I'm walking from my office, as I'm walking from my office down to the other end of the hall to teach a Hebrew class, Lord, I need the help of the Spirit. I need the help of the Spirit to teach me, to help me, even in teaching a Hebrew class. It's repetitive. And every time we have a work to do, every, I say the empowering of the Spirit is task-oriented. And as we engage ourselves then in the ministry of the, serve, uh, uh, of the kingdom, we must ask. We must plead. We must be afraid to enter into that sacred task with our own strength or our own power to rely upon the Spirit of God. So if I can give you any counsel, if I can give you any counsel, any advice of one that has been in the ministry longer than you, don't trust yourself. And don't rely upon yourself. Oh, some of you are brilliant. That's good. Some of you aren't, and that's okay too. But whatever you are, whatever the gifts God has given to you, whatever the ministry is that God will place you in, big, small, here or there, be seeking. Be seeking the power of the Spirit of God. It's available. It's promised to us. <clears throat> It ought to be that which upon, upon which we rely and depend. Power for service. Picture, but what a point it is. What a point it is that we have available God himself to enable us to do what God is calling us to do. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We're thankful for thy word that reveals to us what we need. We're thankful, Lord, for thy spirit that is available to us for the asking to fulfill the tasks of the ministry that thou hast called us to do. So, Lord, I commit each of these students here into thy hands, to my colleagues into thy hands, to myself into thy hands.
that as we are involved in whatever the aspect or scope of the ministry is that we've been called to do, that we would realize our personal insufficiency, that our sufficiency is only of God, and that we have the promised Holy Spirit to enable us to do what in the flesh we cannot do.